0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. If we're relying on our love to serve Jesus, we in trouble. It's not good English, but it's good preaching. If if we're, our our faith is in our ability. To follow the Lord. If our faith is in our faith, then we will come up short. And the Lord loves us enough, every one of us, that he will take you on the same journey he took Peter on. The same journey he took Paul on. And the same journey he takes his other servants on. And he'll bring you to the end of yourself. I shared last week how one of my spiritual fathers, I have several spiritual fathers, I collect them. No, seriously, I I look for men and women of God that I deeply respect and I submit my life to them because I can get for free what they worked years to labor into. If I'll be the student, I can learn in 15 minutes what it took them years to learn by being humble and asking them. And one of my spiritual fathers, Quimby Collier, many of you know Quimby, was counseling me one time, and I don't remember what I was going through. I just remember the nugget of truth I got out of it through Quimby's lips. And he said to me, he said, Dave, he said, is your faith in Jesus or is your faith in your faith? And it was an epiphany to me because I realized in that moment that my trust was really in my ability to trust God and I was doubting my own faith, and rightly so. Because I don't, if my faith is in my ability to serve Jesus, if my faith is in my faith or my faith is in my love, I am going to come up short. And Jesus loves me enough to assure that I go through the experiences which will push that up to the surface and make me face it. And he does it precisely because he loves me. And God wants to bring us to the place where my faith is not in my ability to serve him. My faith is not in my commitment. My faith is not in my love for him. My faith is not in my faith, but my faith is in him to sustain me even when my faith runs low, even when I feel like I'm done. You ever been there? Don't look at me that way. I'm not the only one in here. I've been there where I felt like, Lord, I am at the end of my rope. I was just, I went and saw a dear friend of mine a, a couple of weeks ago. Some of you will remember Richard Green. He was a missionary in Bangladesh for many years and he and his wife moved to Iowa to start a church in Corvallis. and so I drove over to spend some hours with him and, and uh, just remembered all over again why I love Richard. I love that guy, and, and uh, we, we were best friends in Bible school. We, we forged our theology in the wee hours of the morning, and we had made a commitment. We're not going to date. God's going to bring us a wife. Well, thank you, Jesus. The next, the next semester, two girls moved into room 502. He married one. I married the other. <laughs> so now they have a wonderful church, life church. Yeah, amen. Hallelujah. I'll tell my wife you, you clap for her. it. Uh, I, I could go somewhere. Okay, reel it in. Okay, got to reel that in. Uh, but I remember one one day I had come. I was about five years into my walk with Jesus. I was pretty self righteous. It took Peter three years to get there. It took me five years to get there. And I remember crashing and burning. Man, I was I was laying on the floor in my in my Bible school dorm just weeping. And saying, "God, I'm done. I can't serve you. I don't have what it takes. I can't fast enough. I can't pray enough. I'm not in the Word enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I can't do it." And I remember thinking, "How do I get out of this? I, I don't want. I don't want to turn my back on Jesus. I just. I certainly can't be a minister. I, I'd be a fraud if I got up there and tried to act like I had it together." And I was just crying, and I thought, "I." I'd leave Bible school, but my bills are paid here. I already paid for part of the semester, and I got free meals. You know, I don't have anywhere to go. And and I'm just laying there thinking, okay, you know, is it okay if I just go to classes and and pretend I'm going to go into ministry? I'm just crying, and just, I'm in this this state of torment. And it's dark. It was real dramatic. The The blinds were drawn, you know. And I'm laying on my face crying, and I hear this voice, an audible voice. Seriously. Dave. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It wasn't God. It was Richard. He had, he had snuck into my room because we had, we had, yeah, I had you, didn't I? Some of you were really impressed. The others were, I'm getting out of here, that we had suites. And so, we, uh, you know, there was a shared bathroom. And I think he must have come in through the suite and he sat on the bed. And I must have been praying out loud or he had a word of knowledge. I don't know. But I'm telling you, when he said that to me, it was like a lifeline it was like a lifeline that God threw me and took me on a journey of about five years where the Lord began to teach me that very principle, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when he threw me that, 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 began, that began a process, uh, some of which I want to share with you this morning. God began to do a work in me But he had to bring me to the end of myself. And and you know what? I've I've realized I'm not there. I'm not to the end of myself yet. But I'm sure a whole lot more to the end of myself than I was back then. And God loves us enough that he will expose those areas where our trust is still in us. Our ability to serve him. Our ability to hear him. Our ability to walk with him. Our ability to obey him. And ultimately, God will lead us into dark places where we can't see, we don't know, we doubt our ability to hear, and all that we have is, Lord, I trust your heart towards me. I don't trust my heart to seek you. I, I don't trust my mind to understand the Bible. You ever been there? Where, I, how am I supposed to know if this is what it? I remember feeling that as a young Christian. How do I know if this is what it says? First John says you have an anointing within you that will teach you. He even goes as far as to say you don't need teachers. You're, you're not in need of a teacher because you have an anointing within. Now teachers can help. We don't disregard them, please. It's job security, you know. It. Uh, we have. We don't have a need. We're not dependent on teachers, but they are. They're supplemental. They'll throw out things that God will use, and, and God will begin to build a theology and lead us along. But God wants to build your trust in His ability to lead you as a good shepherd. He's a good father, and He will father you well. He's a good shepherd, and he'll always take care of you, even when you're the rebellious sheep, you know? <laughs> you're the one that goes off and goes off on your own and tries to eat the weeds. So we've got we've to yield to that process. Now, here's the thing. The only people that go through that process are the hungry, sincere ones. If you are content to live in the shallow waters of Christianity, God will leave you there. Every now and then he'll bring you know, situations by you to entice you to hunger and thirst for the deeper waters. The deeper life. But it's those who are really hungry, those who are sincere. And the enemy will use your sincerity against you to beat you up with it. You see, the only reason Peter went back to fishing is because Peter was a sincere man of God. Peter was not willing to be a fraud, Peter had too much integrity. So when Peter came face to face with his own betrayal and then he saw the resurrected Jesus, this thing's bigger than I thought, Peter checked himself out and said, hey, you know, the Lord must have made a mistake. I'm not the guy for the job. And so what does Jesus do? He asks him that probing question, do you agape me? And Peter uses a lesser word, Lord, you know I got strong affection. And Jesus immediately says, feed my sheep. What he was telling Peter is, Peter, I can work with that. We talked last week about how on the third time he asked me, he said, Peter, do you, and Jesus as well uses that same word, do you phileo me? And if you look in the text, it looks like they're using the same word, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, it says he was hurt because he asked this third time, do you love me? Well, he was hurt because Jesus even used the lesser term and called into question his affection. And Peter said, Lord, you know. You know all things. You know I have affection for you. I'm not willing to sign off anything else on anything else. I'm not willing to make bold claims that I'll die for you like I did a few weeks ago. But Lord, I'm telling you, I have strong affection for you. So much so that when Peter was in the water and he heard it was the Lord... It was like an intuitive, spontaneous thing. He didn't even have to think about it. He grabbed his cloak and dove in the water. Didn't even wait for the the boat to come ashore. He's swimming with all his, his clothes on, trying to get through the water to get to Jesus. He has to make it to him. And Jesus tells him again, Peter, feed my sheep. And he said, I tell you, Peter, there's coming. He said, when you were young, when you were immature, you went where you wanted. You still trusted your own ability to guide yourself. But I'm telling you, there's coming a day when someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And then then John adds this to the story. He said, and this referred to the type of death by which Peter would die. He would be a martyr. You see, Jesus was going to get Peter where Peter claimed he already was. Peter said, I'll die for you. And Jesus had already warned him, listen, Satan's coming to sift you like wheat, but I'm going to pray for you, Peter. And I'm telling you, the Lord is on the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And he knows the medicine we need. He knows that he has to break us of our self-confidence, but that doesn't mean he's not going to get us where we need to go. He made Peter into the man who would lay down his life for the Lord. He got him there. But what he had to do, the pathway to getting there, the threshold, the the beginning of that thing was that Peter had to have an accurate estimation of himself where his faith is no longer in himself, but his faith is in the Lord, the Lord's ability to keep him and not his ability to keep himself. If you look in Paul's life, Paul went through a very similar process and he outlines it in, in Romans six, seven, and eight those those famous three chapters of scripture it's very uh, very much like that outline i, I don 't know if I mentioned this last week, but years ago, when I was just a young man i 'm still fairly young, but uh, when I was younger some thirty five years ago, uh, I was the interim pastor at an open Bible church, and I was like twenty two years old and uh I I ended up becoming the interim pastor at this church. They had no business putting me in that position, but it was a real learning experience. And by the end of the summer, I was ready to go back to school. And I think they were ready for a new pastor. But uh, it was just a wonderful group of believers that literally prayed me into the kingdom and then allowed me just a few short years later to be their pastor for about four months. And they were so gracious and so supportive. And I'm still indebted to... Many of those saints are now with the Lord, but just a wonderful group of people but during that summer I remember the Lord speaking to me about that whole story of Peter and it rocked me and I, I I ended up sharing that message that summer and then over the next few years I traveled for Teen Challenge and I would preach that message again and again and again and what I what I called it was Peter's because you know you, you had to have all the Ps together because you know you, when you're learning to preach, you got to have all that. You know? And it was called Peter's Preparation for Pentecost. And the three points were this. The receiving of his call, the experience of his fall, and the surrender of his all. Peter received a call from Jesus, and he said, You follow, and I will make you a fisher of men. But it's interesting, when you look at where Peter denied Christ, it says explicitly, I'm going to say it's the, the Gospel of Luke, Peter followed at a distance. He followed, but he followed at a distance. He didn't have a close walk because he didn't see the need for it. Peter was still confident in his own ability to make himself. And the Lord was going to bring him through a situation where he would come to the end of himself and have to trust the Lord to get the job done. So he had to experience his fall. And it was there on the John 21 shoreline that he finally surrendered it all. And you can look at that, that scenario, those steps, Very clearly fit as a template over Paul's experience. In Romans chapter 6, we are dead. You have been crucified with Christ. You're buried with him through baptism. You're dead. Romans 7, you don't act like it. (laughs) Because what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I do. And Paul cries out, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then Romans 8, he breaks into the spirit-filled life. God's answer for man is His Son and His Spirit. Let's look at Galatians chapter three here. Galatians chapter three. Matter of fact, uh, even in chapter two, let's look at verse verse nineteen of chapter two. For though I law, but for though through the law, I died. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Let me read that again. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. Jesus died under the law. The law, he, was, he came under the justice of the law of God. So, but Paul says, for the law, I died to the law. How did Paul die? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, verse 20. Very famous verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So we died with Christ. In the law, we were crucified with him. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be attained through gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. So what Paul is talking about are those who try to attain righteousness by their own works. And listen to what he says. He goes on here in verse, look at verse, uh, verse two. I would, like to, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you, what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? What he's talking about is the very thing that we're talking about this morning, those who understand, okay, I'm saved by grace. Okay, I, I, I know I couldn't save myself. I couldn't change myself. When I met Jesus, I was a homeless alcoholic. I knew I couldn't change myself. I cried out to God in a borrowed bedroom, and he invaded that little room. I mean, the presence of God filled it. I was broken. I was weeping. I was laughing. I began to speak in tongues, and then I stopped and thought, I better say the sinner's prayer just to make sure, because <laughs> I was raised in church, so I had to make sure got my foot in the door. I knew I needed his grace to save me, but then in my twisted way, I thought it was up to me to then grow in holiness and be holy, and if I didn't live up to a certain standard, God was gonna wash his hands of me. I remember being on a Teen Challenge lawn crew one day, mowing the lawn, and something happened, I don't remember what it was, but I cussed under my breath, and I remember as soon as I did, Just this wave of conviction came over me and right behind it, a wave of condemnation because I did not understand. You see, I was sincere, but I was also a legalist. I was sincere, but I didn't understand the gospel. See, if you are sincere and you understand the gospel, you won't live under condemnation. If you are a legalist, you don't understand the gospel, but you're not sincere, you won't live under condemnation because you won't care doesn't matter to you when you fail but when you care when you are sincere when you really want to serve the lord when out of gratitude for what he's done for you you want to live for him and you fail and you think that you're made righteous by your works you see i understood i'm justified by faith but i thought i'm sanctified by works i made it in the kingdom by faith but maturity from here on out is on me And it's all up to me to, and I remember just being so broken. And I I told the, I actually said this to the Lord mowing that lawn in Des Moines. I said, God, you gave me a new life, and now I've put a mark on it. I mean, think about that. Try to live it in that head. I did, it wasn't pleasant. Because I literally thought that God handed me this pristine life. And now I, could, I, I needed to not sin ever again so that I could remain holy. And now I'd put a mark on it. Now it was defective. And it's all downhill from here. I guess I'm going to go back into drugs and alcohol. And I, I lived that way in that, that faulty mindset. I remember Richard, I, I mentioned him. I remember us, we would lay on the floor and pray, God, kill us. Lord, kill us. We want to live for you. We want to we be used by you. God, kill us. Lord, take us to the cross. And I remember one day I was reading in Romans and said, you have been crucified. And I remember calling Richard. I said, Rich, we're already dead. <laughs> and he said, that can't be Right. I mean, it seemed so right when we were praying that. It was so dramatic. You know, oh, God, kill us. Man, it seemed just like, it's like what we read in these biographies. I'll tell you, some of my heroes of the faith, they had some screwy theology. Because they would pray the same thing. God used them, but he had to take them through this process. Where you realize you cannot, you begin by faith, And you, and it's from faith to faith. You begin in the Spirit, and it's by the Spirit. It's not by the flesh. And to the extent that you try to perfect yourself by the flesh, you will come up short, and God, because he loves you, will let you come up short. He'll let you come to the end of yourself and let you have a dramatic prayer time in a darkened dorm room and tell God, I'm done. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I can't do this Christian thing because I was sincere, but I also was a legalist. I had a faulty understanding and legalism and sincerity will always result in condemnation because the enemy will leverage your, your legalism against you and accuse you continually. He will tell you what a poor believer you are. And he'll drive you into the ground with that. And I'm so grateful for that audible voice that I believe was the voice of God through Rich. That there's no condemnation. There's a reason that Paul in in Romans chapter 6 talks about I am dead. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm buried with him through baptism. And then in chapter 7 Paul says but what I want to do I don't do. What I don't want to do I do. The law is tormenting them. Now, there's there's different people believe different things about Romans 7. Uh, There are scholars, uh, less scholarly people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm trying to. There's scholars that believe that that is the pre-Pauline experience, pre-conversion, that that was Paul before he was saved. I don't believe that. I believe that was Paul's experience after he got saved because Paul says, looking back at his pre-conversion days, says, before I was saved, I was Flawless. Uh, w- according to the law, I was blameless. Once he got saved in his heart, his conscience was awakened, the law became a torment to him. What he wanted to do, he didn't do, and what he didn't want to do, he did. His sincerity and his misunderstanding of the gospel actually fueled his flesh. You know, you can actually fuel temptation when you don't understand how to live the Christian life, when you don't understand that it's by grace and it's walking in the spirit. It's having a, it's not so much having a no towards the flesh as it is having a yes towards the spirit. If you'll spend all your time saying yes to Jesus, you'll have to do a whole lot more no's to the flesh. Let me look at this here. Look at Romans chapter eight. Let's let's turn there. Let me show you this little verse. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse... Look at verse 5. Well, let's read from verse 1. It's just so good. I remember years ago reading a commentary and it said that if the Bible were a ring, Romans is the diamond... And if Romans is the diamond, chapter 8 is the sparkle. Come on. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life, the, the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Now just stop there. The problem with the law of God was not the law of God. Be careful when people start dissing the Old Testament and dissing the law of God. When they, when they tongue in cheek make comments, oh yeah, the law, hey, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The problem of the law was not the law itself, but our, our inability the problem was us, our weakness. We couldn't fulfill it. The law is holy. That's why Jesus came to fulfill the law on our behalf. And by the way, that goes for tongues as well. I hear, I hear people make you know, fun of tongues. Oh yeah, I've, I've seen some videos of some guys I really respect mocking tongues because they don't believe in it. I'm thinking, you do understand that was God that inspired, whether you believe it happens today or not. You do understand that was God that inspired the apostles to speak in tongues. Be careful. Okay, I'm getting, yeah. <laughs> look at verse 5. Okay, no, verse 3. For the law was powerless and it, because it was weakened by the flesh. So what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering and so condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now there is a whole lot there we could take a deep dive. I'm not gonna get into this other than to just give you something to think about and chase down on your own. But if you notice, verses 3 and verses 4, one talks about what Jesus did. The other talks about what the Spirit is going to do. One talks about the ministry of Jesus. The other talks about the ministry of the Spirit. The ministry of Jesus, we are a recipient. He did in himself. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so we condemn sin in the flesh, in order that what? The righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the spirit comes to live inside of us, enabling us to live up to the righteous requirements of the law. And it's not that we turn to the law and say, okay, what do I do next? He's written the law on our hearts. The law now lives in us, and it's the Spirit of God that enables us to live up to the righteous requirements of the law. Matter of fact, if if I had a a big old digital screen up here that I could write on, and you could see it on the big screen, I would write the Passover lamb. Jesus was the Passover lamb. Fifty days later, they received what? The law on Mount Sinai. Then you go to the New Testament. The, the Passover lamb was sacrificed on Calvary. And 50 days later, they didn't go to the upper regions of a mountain to receive the law. They went to an upper room to receive the Spirit. So whereas the Passover lamb was sacrificed at Calvary, then the law of God was written on our hearts by the Spirit. And the righteous requirements of the law Are fulfilled in us as we walk after the Spirit. We need to learn to keep in step with Him. He lives His life through us, it's the Spirit filled life. Romans 8 has been called Paul's Pentecost. It's Paul breaking into the spirit-filled life. And it is not a coincidence if you're taking the journey through Romans that you go through the lowlands of Romans 7 and the, the, that, that cry in his heart that says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He had come to the end of himself. If you look at the two most prominent Greek words in Romans chapter 7, they're ego and nomos. Nomos is law. And ego is I. When my ego tries to fulfill the law, I end up crying out to God, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we break into Romans 8. And Paul says it's by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. There's a reason that Paul, that Peter was on the John 21 shoreline Before he was in the upper room. Because the cross paved the way for what the Spirit would fill. The cross emptied him so the Spirit could fill him. And the cross of Jesus is more than a historical event, although it is that. It was a historical event, but it's also an experiential process that we go through as believers. Some go through quicker than others. I often think of this little phrase out of one of Tozer's books. He, he referred to that tough, fibrous root of self. Think about that. That tough, anybody been there? <laughs> that tough, fibrous root, like a, one of those pink erasers, you try to bend it, it's there. I mean, it's, it's going to rear its ugly head. And so God takes us through a process called the cross. And it's experiential. And the cross being applied to our life brings us to the end of ourself. It makes us realize that I can't do this on my own. Till we come to the end of Romans 7 and say, God, who will deliver me from this body of death? I didn't understand it at the time, but that was my dorm room prayer. That was my John 21 shoreline, crying out to God and saying, God, I can't live the Christian life. And the Lord is like, I know. I've been trying to show you that for about five years, buddy. And so the Lord has to take us on that journey. Now, Romans, the book of Romans is full of revelation on this type of stuff. How many of you have ever read the book, The Normal Christian Life? It's by Watchman Nee. Phenomenal book. Uh, if you've never read it, I would recommend it. It's Some people find it hard to re- To read I've got to be in a certain mood to read books like that but man it is a great book and uh, I'm going to ask the ushers if you could get the the communion elements ready uh, get ready for communion and um, Laura could you get me one I forgot to grab one thank you John it uh, we're going to receive communion this morning I'm going to do just a quick few minutes of teaching on something here that for us to grasp this Okay, in uh, watch Nee's take on the book of Romans. He's brilliant. Really, he deals with the first eight chapters. And, and he, this is his assessment, that the book of Romans, the, it, the first eight chapters is one self-contained unit. Okay? You can read 9 through 16 later, but 1 through 8 is a self-contained unit. And he divides it in two halves. The first half is verse 1-1 through verse five eleven, And then verse 512 through verses 839. It's the second, second unit. Now, I believe the Lord taught Watchman Nee this principle. I believe he showed him. It's brilliant. And I can't read Romans any other way now that I see it through Watchman Nee's eyes. Watchman Nee was a, a very gifted uh, teaching apostle in China back in the 30s, 40s. He ended up spending years in a, in a prison camp and uh, died in the 70s. Brilliant teacher. And this is what he brings out. He said, if you look at these two, ha- the two halves of that first eight chapters, he said, you'll find there is a, a, a great difference in the terminology in those two sections. The first section is addressing the problem of sins, plural. That's the word you'll see, sins, sins, sins. The second part, 5.11 to 8.39, you'll begin to see this word, sin. The first part is dealing with our actions, our sins, what we do. The second part addresses that sin nature. And then he brings this out, that God, the dual problem of man, required a dual solution. And God's solution was the blood for sins and the cross for sin. The blood for the things you did and the cross for the person doing it. He has this wonderful illustration in that book. And it's, it's worth reading, I'm telling you. You need to get the book. He has this wonderful illustration. He said, if we were to uh, just declare prohibition once again, uh, in our region, we're saying there is no alcohol. Maybe you live in St. Louis, let's say that, because I used to have a, a bus ministry around the brewery in St. Louis at the Budweiser plant. And we said, now there's prohibition. We will not allow alcohol to be consumed or produced in this, in this city. And so we make a law: no more alcohol consumption. We go out there and we, break, we go into the local store and we break open all the alcohol, we pour it out. He said that's dealing with the sins, what has been produced from the factory, the individual bottles. We pour it out. The problem is we come back next week and the shelves are lined again with all this all this alcohol. Why? Because we didn't shut down the factory, which is what the cross does. I produced sins because by nature... I was a sinner. So what was God's solution? He shed the blood of Jesus to cover my sins. And he crucified his son to kill the sinner. The blood took care of the bottles on the shelf. The cross went and shut down the factory. A lot of people only have a revelation of dealing with what's on the shelf. And so they live a life of Ask forgiveness, sin again. Ask forgiveness and sin again. Ask forgiveness and sin again. And they find forgiveness in the blood, but what their heart longs for if they're sincere is the freedom that can only be found in the cross. The cross crucifies the sinner so I, the sinner, no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I have a new nature he takes up residence in me. I remember hearing this old biker. His theology wasn't real deep, but it was sound. And he, he helped young boys come out of drug addiction. He was a rough old dude. And this was his theology. When I, when I gave my life to Jesus, he came in, sat on my heart, and looks out my eyeballs. And that's who you encounter when you talk to me, because now he lives in there. That's good theology. Too many of us are saying, Jesus, you take a side. I'll take this one. And we're looking out our eyeballs. <laughs> and that's when we get in trouble. So the Lord brought Paul to the end of himself. He brought Peter to the end of himself. Now let me tell you this. That the foundation of Christian maturity is being secure in your relationship with the Lord in regards to not living under condemnation. Condemnation is the way the enemy separates you from the source. We're to abide in him. We're just the vine. He's, I mean, we're just the branch. He's the vine. And when we're connected to him, the life-giving sap grows through us and, you know, fruit happens. It just happens. Little grapes. But if we start getting arrogant, I'm going to produce my own. We just shrivel up. We start having raisins and then we have nothing. Nothing. We're not to be the California raisins. We're to be plugged into the source. And so the enemy comes through condemnation and cuts you off. He makes you believe that God is displeased with you and he's rejected you because of your failure when God has made provision for those failures. It's not that we're minimizing sin, it's that we're saying, I'm not going to allow my behavior, my failure, to cost me a relationship with God. Todd White is one of the greatest examples of this. I remember when we had Todd and, you know, Dan Muller is Todd's spiritual father. I know Dan much better than Todd, but Dan, when Dan met Todd, Todd was a raging drug addict. I mean, a maniac. And he came stumbling into the church one day, was gonna kill himself, met Dan. (laughs) And Dan led him to Jesus. And Todd would come back and say, Dan, I shot up again. I shot some drugs. And Dan said, yeah, but that's not who you are. What do you mean? Did you hear what I said? I just shot up drugs. I stole money from my girlfriend to feed our babies. Yeah, but that's not who you are. And Dan just kept pumping the truth into him, telling him who he was. Now he travels the nations, releasing the kingdom of God. It's because he began to believe the truth. See, Dan became the safety against that condemnation because condemnation tries to define your identity as a failure separated from God. And in fact, you will separate yourself from God when you're under condemnation because who wants to hang out with someone that's really, really disappointed in them? And if you believe, if the enemy can get you to believe that God is really disappointed with you, you're not gonna be showing up at a prayer meeting. You're not going to open your Bible and read it. You're going to, even if it's subconsciously, you're going to kind of avoid the Lord. You know what I used to do? I had this theology of a penalty box. I figured I'll just stay away from the Lord for two days and then i think it'll be okay. You know, I got to be in the penalty box. Now, I don't know where I got that, that twisted theology, but it was my response to condemnation. I wasted a lot of time wandering in the wilderness when I could have been in the throne room. And I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus is the key. Let me tell you one quick story. Some of you have heard me tell this years ago. We're, we're uh, doing Devos uh, staff a staff devotional time before we'd go up and have chapel with the students at Teen Challenge. And uh, there was this one guy we had just hired. He was a former pastor, and we're all talking about the Book of Jonah. And he says, "You know why Jonah hated the Ninevites?" Because they were some sick dudes. He said, you know, they used to skin people alive and just relish in the pain. And then he said, they used to, they had this game that they would say, okay, you're a captive. We'll give you an opportunity to be set free. If you can run across this field before we catch you, we'll give you a head start. But if you can make it across the field before we catch you, you're a free man. Well, they're, they're weighing out, you know, skinned alive, run for my life. I think I'll do that. And so they would take off running not knowing that the Ninevites had made a bet on how far that guy could run without his head. And they would ride up on a horse with a long sword and drop his head off and his body would keep running and fall and they'd all laugh <laughs> and whoever got the closest would get paid. You kind of understand why Jonah didn't like these people. <laughs> so he's telling us this and I'm thinking, wow, what a great picture before breakfast. Thanks, John. John. We go up to chapel and we're worshiping, and the Lord interrupted me. And this is what he it wasn't audible. Richard wasn't there, but it was very clear, internal voice of the Lord. He said, Dave, that's exactly what the enemy does to you. He can he he brings the sword of condemnation and then cuts you off from the head. Jesus is the head. He is our source. But through condemnation, he divides me from him. And now I'm I'm cut off from the vine. I'm trying to produce grapes, but I have no life. And the enemy will use condemnation trying to convince you that you've got to be good enough. And And if you're not, then you really got to spend some time in the penalty box. And the crazy thing is, with that mentality, even when you're doing good, you're not. Because it's self-righteousness. It's filthy rags you're offering God. And if we just realize, Lord, I have nothing in me, in and of myself, to offer you, but I got everything you need in me, in Christ. And the blood of Jesus is the, you can put it this way, the blood of Jesus is the safety net under the trapeze of Christianity. When you're learning, hey, if there's no net, I'm going to be a little stiff. <laughs> I don't think I'll let go of this one, you know. No, it's, like, jump now. <laughs> no, I can't relax. If I have a safety net, I can start being, whoo, taking risks. <laughs> Grabbing their ankles, you know, and all that stuff. Trust allows me to take risks. The blood of Christ is that safety net. That when my faithfulness runs low, I'm not endorsing that behavior. I'm just telling you, he's already made provision for it. The blood of Jesus answers on my behalf. The blood of Jesus offers the Father everything he requires of me. Hebrews 9, the high priest would go in and get once a year, present the blood on the altar, and they would have a rope on his ankle. And he had, he had uh, pomegranates and bells, little dingleberries, around the bottom of his, his robe. Why? Because it would make sound when he's moving around. No one else could go in. And if there's no more dingling on the dingleberries, they'd pull on the rope. And if there's not a pullback, uh oh, they'd pull the body out. In our case, Jesus himself walked into the Holy of Holies. And he presented the blood. What was the blood? The life is in the blood. What was in that blood? It was a life that had fulfilled every requirement that God ever had for man. Hebrews says, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus fulfilled every requirement of the Father and then he cried out, it is Finished. What's finished? Every requirement that God had for man. He fulfilled it. And when I know that, when I believe that, what I'm telling you took me months and several years to believe. It took me several years to understand. The Lord took me on a journey. But it set me free. So I can do backflips. And if I, whoa, good. Get back up on the ladder and do it again. The blood of Jesus answers to the Father for every requirement that he has for me. So I can come boldly before the throne of grace. How? Because I can go to the throne room and say, Father, I know the one thing that you require for me to get in there is perfection. And I don't have it in and of it myself, but I have it in this blood. I enter by the blood of the Lamb. And I used to go through these mental gymnastics, picturing myself standing outside the throne room and saying, God, I know that this is the requirement and I can enter in by that. And I would picture God welcoming me. I was retraining my mind because I was a person who lived under condemnation. And I'm telling you, this revelation is the foundation to the Christian life. That's where things begin to move for you. But God first has to establish your faith in his righteousness as your righteousness. And with that, let's take communion. All right. If you want to open your communion wafers here. Hope you didn't do what I did and open your juice first. That's a challenge. There we go. Okay. Okay. Scripture says on the night that Jesus was taken, he took what's become known as the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He was honoring the Passover and reinterpreting it into a new meal called the Lord's Supper. And when they did that, he, it says he first of all took the bread and he held it up and he said, Guys, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat it. And he broke that that bread. Just break your little wafer this morning. He broke it. I I would be negligent if I didn't just pause for a moment and tell you that Jesus could have purchased your eternal salvation and never went to the whipping post. You could have had heaven as your eternal home and he would have never had to take the stripes. But Jesus wasn't just interested in getting you into an eternal home in heaven. He was interested in it having effect down here. So he went to the whipping post for mental torment, just like Kate shared this morning. Mental torment comes off because of the whipping post. Physical healing in our body. He absorbed it all at the whipping post. I want to encourage you, if you need healing in your body, it's already been paid for. He absorbed the pain, the shredding, the, the, the torture, the torment at the whipping post so that you could walk in that freedom today. And so just hold your bread up. Lord, we thank you. Jesus, just say his name. Jesus, we thank you. King Jesus, Lord, we thank you that your suffering did not start at the cross, Your word is very clear that you learned obedience by the things you suffered. You left the glories, the comfort of heaven to become a human child and a man only to be tortured by your own creation. And you did it for us. Jesus, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that you endured the whipping post the shredding of your flesh for our physical and emotional healing. And now, Lord, in faith, we ingest who you are. Let's take the bread. Hallelujah. says, Jesus then took the cup and he said this this cup is the new covenant in my blood the word covenant literally means to cut Jesus cut covenant with the father he made the agreement they made an agreement with one another they both lived up to the requirements of their agreement and you and I just step in on the good of that and it's in the blood Understand, what you have in here is what satisfies God. This satisfies every requirement God has for you. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. Jesus, we thank you that no man took your life. Freely, you gave it. Now, Holy Spirit, I'm asking That you would make that real to us, open the eyes of our understanding. And Lord, I'm asking God that in these coming days there would be a work of your spirit across this congregation and across this region. Lord, that you would establish us so firmly in your righteousness we cannot be shaken, that the accuser of the brethren is muzzled. That he just says, I'm going to go have to go somewhere else because they are not receptive to my accusations. Lord, give us a revelation of the blood. Let's take it. Hallelujah. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, You can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.